Speech Pathology Australia acknowledged the traditional custodians of the lands, seas and waters throughout Australia and pay respect to Elders past, present and future. We recognise that the health and social and emotional well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are grounded in continued connection to culture, country, language and community and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week we showcase a conversation with inspiring and influential people who are advancing practice in one of the many and varied areas of speech pathology. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Hello and welcome to this week's Speak Up Conversation. I'm Helen Saunders from Epworth Rehabilitation and Mental Health in Melbourne. I'm the Deputy Manager of Speech Pathology and Dietetics for our four rehabilitation hospitals and our Epworth Private Health Clinic. In our hospitals and private clinic, we see patients with various facial disorders following trauma, head and neck surgery, viral illnesses, and neurological disorders such as stroke and Parkinson's disease. Facial rehabilitation is a service we provide and we are always looking for new information about treatment techniques and evidence for various approaches. I'm excited to have this opportunity to learn more about research and treatment in this area from Annabelle Vaughan, the Senior Speech Pathologist at Gold Coast Health. Annabelle is a PhD candidate at the University of Queensland who is speaking with me today. Welcome, Belle. Thank you very much. Well, you've completed and published in the last two years a systematic review and a multidisciplinary survey about current practice in physical rehabilitation of facial palsy in Australia and internationally. How did you come to be interested in physical rehabilitation of facial nerve palsy? Um, so it's been a little bit of a convoluted road, but I ended up working, um, I've been working at the Gold Coast uh, the health service for about five or six years um, and mm -hmm. I've spent the majority of that time in the neuro rehab ward um, and I noticed a few years ago that um, we were having really frequent admissions of patients into the rehab ward who were presenting with um, a unilateral facial palsy following a brain injury or a stroke um, and they were presenting with a variety of associated functional impairments so not everyone is dysarthric not everyone is dysphagic actually some of the some of the patients were neither but they still were presenting with facial palsy um, and a lot of the patients when I was talking to them about their various speech or swallow um, difficulties resulting from their um, various neurological impairments were reporting that they were quite affected by the change in their facial appearance change in their facial function and they were very keen for information about something that they could do to help progress their recovery. Um, and I realised that I actually didn't know anything about what I could offer to them and if there was anything to offer. Um, so I had a friend and colleague who was working with me um, for a short time um, in the rehab unit. She'd worked in a couple of the major Brisbane hospitals in, in neuro rehab. Um, and she actually had used facial taping for facial weakness after stroke and brain injury, mostly brain injury in the past. And despite there not being any sort of 
strong evidence for it. She reported anecdotally that um, her and her colleagues who had used it in Brisbane found it really useful and found that patients gave positive feedback and, um, and noticed improvements or noticed change. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I was lucky enough to do a little bit of, I guess, supervision and guided practice with her and learnt about how, how they did that. Um, but my, my burning question was, what's the evidence here? How is, is it working or is it just that we wanted to see it, um, to see a change? Is it something that we're just providing to our patients and they're, you know, they're affected by this? So, so they're looking for an improvement, even if it's maybe not um, measurable change. And what's the evidence here? Like, is there, is there a theoretical basis that this might be grounded in? And I guess I couldn't find anything at all um, on any, for any of those questions in any of the literature. And, um, and were so, there other yeah. techniques that you were looking at as well as the taping? Um, I couldn't really find very much, to be honest. There wasn't much at all in terms of literature for central nervous system related facial palsy. A lot of the um, a lot of the literature or exercises or websites that I found, and there's quite a bit of um, sort of random PowerPoints and things on on Google as well as sort of published literature. It all seemed to be very relevant to peripheral facial palsy, for, and for the most part, it linked to Bell's palsy. Okay. Um, yeah. So I guess then then I thought that I needed to do a bit more of a structured. Um, a structured evidence review and that's where the that's where the um, the postgraduate studies started off. Um, can you uh, perhaps explain the difference between central nerve palsy and peripheral nerve palsy um, because you yeah, are looking yeah. at the um, the central more so and your surveys were addressing that perhaps or were they yeah, addressing both? Yeah. Um, so they were, um, so both the systematic review and the survey were both um, aimed at finding more information about central facial palsy. So the first step um, of the systematic review team was to sort of figure out what terminology to use because there are lots of different terms that are used for facial palsy, facial paralysis, facial weakness, facial asymmetry. Um, we needed to figure out the terminology and we also needed to define what we meant by central facial palsy, because we wanted to be really clear that this was something resulting from a stroke or brain injury, not something resulting from um, damage to peripheral nerve um, branches, for example, post post head and neck surgery or post um, facial fractures or facial trauma, things like that. Yes. So we found we found a really nice definition um, in one of the in one of the papers uh, that we were looking at for in terms of the introduction for our systematic review, and it, it defines that central facial palsy um, results from damage to the central segment of the nerve, so the facial nucleus, the motor cortex, or the connections between the two. So that anything that's um, extra temporal or anything that's the sort of the external branches of the of the facial nerve are classified as peripheral nerve palsy. So that's things that um, a lot of speech pathologists might be more familiar with, like Bell's palsy, um, surgery after um, mastoidectomy or cystic neuromas. Yeah. yeah. 
um, or things like inflammation. So um, in herpes zoster, so Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, that would all sort of be the peripheral nerve branches mm-hmm. that are being affected. It's not, it's not within the sort of CNS. So the information you gained through your survey, do you think people focused on the um, central nerve palsies uh, rather than the yeah. So, so we were quite specific in, in our terminology that we used um, for the survey and for the systematic review. So the systematic review was designed to look specifically for um, evidence relating to physical rehabilitation for central facial palsy. Um, and we actually only found 13 papers um, from, and, and it was, yeah, it, it the original search result was quite large, but we only managed to actually find um, 13 specific um, relevant texts. Um, and out of those, only four were randomised control trials. Um, 12 of the 13 were all to do with stroke, and there was one um, that was talking about facial central facial palsy resulting from brain injury. Um, but I guess even even the papers that we retrieved, the level of evidence and therefore the level of clinical confidence in the various techniques that they reported on. And there were lots of sort of movement programs and a few devices um, and a few sort of stretching regimes. None of the none of the papers were really high quality evidence and none of them were sort of, I guess, strong enough to feel as a clinician that uh, I, I knew that I was presenting an option for therapy that was that was valid and worthwhile and, and I guess worth the time and, and commitment that a lot of them were asking for for the patient. Mm, mm. So that's where the survey stepped in because what I then thought was, um, well, I need to find out who's doing what um, and, you know, what, what are people doing, who's doing it. And whose role is this? Because that was the next sort of, that was the next question was, well, I'm not doing anything as a speech pathologist and, and there isn't any evidence for really for things that I should be doing. So is anyone else doing this? Because one of the conversations that I had with the, um, with my supervisory team was, oh, well, is, is this an area that physiotherapists are targeting in neurological rehab because often the physiotherapists play quite a strong role in some of the peripheral nerve clinics. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, but in my experience at, at the rehabilitation sites I'd worked at, um, for central nervous system facial palsy, so central facial palsy, the physiotherapists, it, it didn't even sort of factor into their, their scope of practice or their awareness at all. That was, and, and so my sort of... Um, my clinical practice and my anecdotal um, experience led me to think well actually I need to quantify this and I need to have some some more reliable evidence than this is what I've seen yeah so that's where the survey that's where the survey design came from and and it was really specific in terms of leading leading the participants who filled out the survey through um, the definition of central facial palsy um, talking about sort of the the neurological impairments that might result in central facial palsy and being as clear as we could um, about the the method of injury resulting in the facial palsy that they we were then asking for their um, their information. Did you get a variety of allied health professionals 
responding to the survey? We did. Um, we got 78 respondents, mostly from Australia and the UK. Um, there was definitely a, a strong prevalence of speech pathologists, mm -hmm. um, but we did get some physiotherapists and I think we got maybe two OTs because mm -hmm. I think in, in America, um, OTs might have a little bit more involvement in things like swallowing um, and oromotor sort of function than they do in, in the UK and in Australia. Mm. Um, but it was it was a predominant um, population of speech pathologists, and I guess that's because I'm a speech pathologist, and and it was easier to reach out to um, speech pathology associations. It was quite tricky to um, be able to get in touch with the the various other allied health associations. I think that there isn't a general experience though that speech pathology certainly in this country. Um, deal with this and, and perhaps it's because there's a lot of other um, symptoms that the patients have that are being dealt with by physiotherapy and uh, the face may or may not be the priority in all cases and um, perhaps yeah. we pay more attention to it I don't know. Yeah I think so and and actually funnily enough one of the things that one of the um, findings of the survey was that a lot of the, the physiotherapists who were working in, in the rehabilitation units and in, in neuro rehab were reporting that they thought it was the speech pathologist's role to be dealing with that because we are the, I guess, we're the experts on all things face and speech and swallow related. And, um, and that's actually something I talked a little bit about in the discussion in that survey paper, um, was going back to the Speech Pathology Australia um, scope of practice and, and looking also at, um, I guess, university courses and looking at what we're taught and, and what speech pathologists uh, learn about muscle function and rehabilitation of oromotor structures. And, and it is something that, well, we are, we are the experts in, in facial musculature, in facial anatomy and physiology, in in neurological rehabilitation of those specific structures. So it, it does really, it does beg the question, why is it something that is not um, addressed more, I guess, widely by, by speech pathology as a profession? Yeah, I think um, something that's interesting from my perspective is that the treatments that physiotherapists use on muscles and nerves, um, perhaps that's what we don't have the same knowledge base I don't know so taping mm. is something as an example of that that they use for lots of parts of the body yeah but that's sort of there's that crossover is missing so yeah although we work a lot with the head and neck and face we work in a different way more functionally around what the person needs to be able to do so to chew to swallow to speak Mm. Um, and perhaps we don't have the same um, approach to uh, the, the actual muscle tone and, and how you um, improve that and, and what techniques there are in physiotherapy that might assist with that. Yeah, and it's definitely, even outside of facial palsy, it's actually something that I've been really passionate about the last couple of years is using that physiotherapy approach and, and asking well, why don't speech pathologists have that same knowledge where, where, you know, we use the principles of neuroplasticity, we use the principles of motor learning, that's something that's very strong in our approach to things like um, apraxia of speech and dysphagia rehabilitation. And yet, 
we still still seem to keep ourselves quite separate from muscle physiology and 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 linking muscle physiology with the plasticity the neuroplasticity principles and the motor learning principles and i know um particularly in in swallowing um my thinking definitely has moved away from sort of exercising individual structures or exercising individual movements to having that sort of holistic approach of exercising as a function but using the principles of, of muscle strengthening of, of complex movement um, of, of training and, and resistance and you know intensity and, and teaching based on based on the principles that I think the physiotherapists have been maybe using for longer than speech pathologists or mm -hmm. maybe integrate better into their practice I'm not sure mm -hmm. but that's definitely something that was um, that I was thinking about a lot when I was I was thinking about facial palsy and and what we could what we could take and what we could apply and and the facial taping is something that um, so anecdotally we saw we saw really we got really good feedback um, it's something that I've in my reading, it seems like the exercise side of things, I must admit, I need to do a bit more reading. But from what I've read, because of the difference in muscle physiology and the facial muscles and the lack of, um, the lack of muscle um, spindles and stretch receptors and things like that, I'm, I'm not a physiologist by any <laughs> stretch, neither. but um, it, changes the, it changes the way that we think about exercising those muscles and it also changes the way that proprioception works. Mm -hmm. And one of the ideas that I had about the facial taping, which from, from a theoretical perspective, it seems like it might tie in, um, is that maybe using proprioceptive feedback, like external proprioceptive feedback with the taping might help with um, self-monitoring and potentially cortical representation um, mm -hmm. yeah but that's still a that's really still a quite a tentative hypothesis mm -hmm. um, at the well, moment that's interesting I hadn't hadn't thought about it in that way the use of taping I think um, as a, a feedback device a fe something yeah. that people feel um, yeah. I guess I'd thought about it more as a supporting the muscles and trying to hold them in a less strained position or, or something like that so that you get some shortening of the muscle or, or um, mm. um, yeah, so that's, that's really interesting. What else did you find out in your survey that, you know, the general sort of feel that speech pathologists or physiotherapists had for, for treating this area? Did they feel confident? Did they feel well-trained? Absolutely not. So the, the questions I looked at were what, what, is what is current practice? Who's involved? What services are available? Um, and what are sort of the attitudes and perceptions of allied health professionals who are involved in this population? And I found that the majority of respondents didn't have any specialised services, be it physio or speech, for people with facial palsy. Mm -hmm. um, there were not really any sort of established care pathways or, or any sort of um, health service level um, systems in place to identify these people or to offer any rehabilitation. And, and I found that really interesting because there was a paper 
that was published by Claire Mitchell um, in the UK in 2020, her and her team were looking at um, defining the population post-stroke of aphasia and dysarthria. But an interesting side note that they made was that um, while 70% of people with dysarthria had a facial palsy, which is something that you would expect because of the, you know, the motor, um, the motor cortex damage and the links between those two systems. The other thing she found was that I think it was 19% of the patients presented with no communication impairment, but they did have a facial palsy. And those patients were not seen by speech pathologists and they were not seen by physiotherapists. So there's a whole chunk and it might not be a huge population, but there's definitely a population who are affected functionally and psychologically um, by this facial palsy and there aren't services that are widely or um, consistently available. So do you think that um, the, their doctors feel that it will recover just without any intervention? Yeah, I think there is a, a perception of that. And there was a paper, there's a, actually, I, I must figure out who wrote it, but there was a paper published um, quite a few years ago. So I'm thinking in the 80s um, that talked about a really high um, spontaneous recovery rate, mm -hmm. which is actually then this later paper looked again at that and found that actually there was quite a large percentage of patients who didn't have that um they didn't have that oh it's it's a volk um et al paper and they found that quite a high percentage continued to present at least three weeks post onset and that over 60 percent of those patients were discharged from subacute rehabilitation with deficits persisting for more than 41 days post stroke so it is something that that I think that you're right, the perception is that it will recover on its own, but actually the evidence suggests that that's not entirely accurate or it's not globally applicable. I think also that for the patient, it's not the most obvious problem they have initially and, and it takes them time to realise that that problem exists and, and it becomes important later. So I, I guess um, it would be interesting for us to know when is the right time to treat? Do you, do you treat early? Is the patient motivated um, or is it okay to treat a long way down the track when it's yeah. more important to them? It's a good question and I think from just speaking purely as a, as a rehab speechy and, and um, my experience with, with that kind of question, in most areas it seems to be that you make the most of that initial period of brain plasticity post-stroke and so maybe we should be thinking about this as, as something that should be, shouldn't be left because maybe there is um, more opportunity to um, improve or more potential gain to be made in that earlier period but then that was one of the other things that came up as one of the barriers in the survey paper was that a lot of the current um, treatments or therapies are quite time intensive they're quite resource intensive they need sort of you know the the patient needs to be sitting there in front of a mirror or in front of a therapist doing really specific movements for say an hour of their time. And if they have to choose between an uneven smile and walking, then mm. in an inpatient rehabilitation setting, of course, they're going to pick walking or, or those like big goals that get them out of hospital and get them returning to independent living. Um, 
and that was one of the I guess the appealing things of, of further investigation of the taping is it's something that you can apply and then leave and it doesn't have an impact on participation in the rest of a full rehab program so it doesn't affect intensity um, of rehabilitation of, of say upper and lower limbs mm-hmm. um, and it's also something that depending on the patient's level of function and cognition they might actually be able to apply themselves mm-hmm. so it doesn't necessarily rely on the face-to-face access to a to a clinician for a full say hour of, of therapy in a, in a more traditional sort of model. And do we know how well patients can do that learn to, to use taping? So that is my next step in research. So I'm currently um, setting up or in the final throes of paperwork um, to start a feasibility trial looking at can we, can we do this? Can patients do this? So can, we, um, can they apply tape themselves at home with, a, um, with potentially assistance from a significant other if they, if they need it? Um, do they do it? Do they like it? Do, are there any sort of, um, are there any positive or negative outcomes that we find? So we won't be able to comment on effectiveness of the therapy yet. That would need a, um, a much bigger randomized control trial with a lot more information than we currently have um, about taping. But, but definitely we'll be able to see if that model works and is something that's feasible to then try and roll out on a on a larger scale and I think the really exciting part of that is um, that if we can move towards more self-directed or self-applied therapy um, with with that telehealth kind of guidance from from a trained speech pathologist we're opening up access to people that don't live in metropolitan areas or don't have the kind of access to big tertiary centers and big um, I guess training centers and that's something else that the barriers um, that was one of the barriers in the survey was access to specialist or trained clinicians. A lot of the time, you know, there might be one or two in a major centre, but a lot of the generalist clinicians didn't feel like they were trained or skilled in delivering or even talking about um, rehabilitation of facial palsy. Mm. Yeah, I guess uh, in working with peripheral nerve palsies, even patients taping their eyelids, um, they they drop that fairly quickly. It's uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. Um, they don't exactly know how to do it. And I've noticed that, that, that sometimes we return them to doing that because it's still needed, but they've yep. lost it because they haven't had that support to, to keep yeah, them going. Yeah. And it seems very simple when, and it's quickly explained to them by a nurse or a doctor or maybe a therapist, um, mm. but they go home and they don't actually continue doing it because it's not much fun to do and, yeah. uh, if it's uncomfortable. And, yeah. and uh, so, yeah, I think, I think having someone to actually support that is really helpful and, and telehealth is a great opportunity and, and mm. perhaps other audiovisual means of demonstrating things too. Yeah, yeah. What, um, what parts of the face... Um, or how do you sort of envisage using tape for those speech pathologists who've never used tape? What, what's, it, what's it like to, to use with a patient? Have you it's, got any examples that have been helpful for patients? Um, to be honest, it's very, very simple um, and we haven't got a set protocol of how to apply it and there's definitely not um, 
from when from what I've learned and what I've used it hasn't been a um you know there's no calipers and measuring and things <laughs> like that it's literally just I guess applying the same principle that often you read in the um in the facial palsy therapy literature of of aiming for symmetry mm-hmm. so it's it is using that tape to often to apply to like upper lip um chin cheek to support and maintain that um that position but mm-hmm. also hopefully possibly theoretically <laughs> um i guess re-establishing some of those connections that have been damaged by the stroke about um proprioception and position in space and and where that is supposed to sit versus where it currently is sitting and so where are we at with um, being able to assess patients and measure you know the change at that level well, that's quite an exciting area of research too, actually. There's been a lot that's come out in the last couple of years. Um, so when I started the when I started the systematic review um, quite a few years ago, there wasn't very much. And then all of a sudden there seems to have been an explosion in literature relating to facial palsy and even relating to central facial palsy, mm-hmm. um, which is great because it, it seems like there's more and more people asking questions. Um, so there's a few tools available. Um, we tend to use the Sunnybrook um, as a sort of clinician graded scale, but there's also the House Brackman, which most people would be familiar with. Um, the problem with both of those is they're still quite subjective and they're quite um, gross in terms of their measurement. Um, so it's hard to measure, um, I guess, uh, fine changes. Um, there's been a tool um, published on an in an app form called the eFace, which is um, something else that my um, my feasibility study is going to use as an outcome measure. Um, and then there's some really exciting software that's been in development for a little while now. Um, so there's the auto eFace, but then there's also uh, an automated um, facial recognition software that that um, applies a bunch of points to the face and can measure symmetry ratios between photos Um, and from from a little bit of reading uh, a few weeks ago I think there's a few more systems coming out like that I think they're all still in the um, in the programming and testing phase I don't think there's anything that's sort of uh, widely validated and ready to um, sort of ready to use broadly through um, as an accepted tool, I guess, because it's such a new area. Mm. Um, But there's definitely some really interesting um, programming happening um, Mm. in that space. So hopefully, um, hopefully there might then be some easier ways of assessing and some easier ways of assessing in function Mm. rather than, I guess, the more... um, sort of the the previous way of measuring sort of tiny ratios between various facial structures I think measuring movement and measuring symmetry would that be more around facial expressions or would it also include things like chewing and um, you know eye closure um, have you seen it, them enough to know that yeah so it's more to do with um, it's more to do with movement and expression than it is to do with chewing so eye closures included smilings included lip seals included but chew is not really Mm -hmm. um, 
yeah so it doesn't it doesn't really go into the um sort of dysphagia end of mm -hmm. um of function so much okay that sounds really interesting and i i have seen some you know on some shows about the use of um uh cosmetic surgery and and facial expression changes and and so it looks like there's some potential you know for us to learn from from uh some of some of the ways that emotions are certainly measured on screens and um, yeah could be adapted yeah. um so yeah pretty interesting um do you think that um um that we've got um enough sort of uh, people interested in this area it, it, will it be something that that other allied health professionals would would also work in physiotherapists you know if there was more evidence base there um, and should yeah, we be doing I, it as a team rather than as individuals and yeah absolutely I think so I mean if you look at um, if you look at the peripheral nerve um, world they're they're a few steps ahead of of the central facial palsy world and you've got specialist facial clinics like um, like the facial nerve clinic down in Sydney, mm -hmm. um, where they've got physiotherapists working really closely with surgeons and speech pathologists, and and it's a really sort of it, it's a really integrated team approach to to that management. Whereas in the in the central facial palsy, I think because there's so much um, uncertainty about the ownership of the role and, and the training and the responsibility of who, who manages it and who's almost whose jurisdiction it falls under. Um, it definitely doesn't feel like there's a, um, there's as a coordinated or as an integrated view of it yet. But I think that that seems to be changing, which is nice. So where are you at with your research now? Have you, have you started? No, I'm just sort of doing the last final documentation for site-specific approvals, um, but I have ethics approval and everything sort of lined up to hopefully start sometime in the next couple of months. And will you be hoping to um, recruit patients? In a, in yeah, yeah. So I'm hoping to recruit up to I think it's up to thirty um, patients who will actually undergo or sort of perform a protocol of, of facial taping with telehealth check-ins um, from from a member of the research team and then I've actually got um, I've actually got a control group who I will be um, using down in Auckland so with Dr Anna Miles um, she will have a group of uh, another group of hopefully up to 30 um, who will be just that assessment so we'll assess at the same time frames but they won't actually um, be getting any taping um, because it's not part of their usual practice down there so it'll enable us to sort of look at two two different population or two populations and and I guess measure a little bit of that spontaneous recovery question even if it's um, again sort of preliminary data it'll give us a good idea of um, of what change happens in that time frame and would you be excluding other treatments during that time no no, no. so it's because it's a feasibility study we haven't had to we haven't had to um, make any changes to usual care mm -hmm. um, yeah and I think I mean it's it's always difficult um, to balance clinician and researcher because 
in the research world, everything needs to be very controlled. And in the clinical mind, you're thinking, you know, that's not how it's actually going to work in real life. Um, so I'm hoping that I'll be able to continue to design research that, that um, I guess is, is as practical as possible while also giving strong results. I think the balance between goal setting for patients and the patient's own, what they think is, is their primary goal is important. And uh, I kind of wonder how you see this in the future, you know, how, how it will be that um, we determine the priorities for rehab for patients. And, and um, uh, I guess at the moment, perhaps we're being a bit clinician led on, you know, what's the priority and... Mm. Uh, have you had any feedback from patients about what what their experience has been and perhaps how it could have been better? If, could could they have been um, given more therapy early on for their face that perhaps they missed out on? Or... Yeah, I think I wouldn't say missed out on because I think there's still so much uncertainty as to what, if anything, we should be doing and what works and what doesn't. But I think definitely raising it as a question and asking patients how they're how they're fine, you know, how they're feeling about it and whether it's something that they want more information and whether they want us looking around for options for therapy and whether, you know, if we can present it as something that won't detract from the other therapy that they receive but might be beneficial. Um, I think it's definitely worthwhile because I have had several patients who, especially who are younger or trying to return to work. Um, and maybe don't have sort of significant upper or lower limb deficits who are really, really affected by their facial palsy. It, you know, there's, yes. there's people who work as managers, there's people who work in, um, in you know, public facing roles who feel like, I guess, while from a, from a clinical perspective, if you're a rehabilitation clinician trying to get people home safely, it might not be a high priority for that patient. It's life changing. And, and there is some really good research about the impact that facial palsy can have. And it's not necessarily a, one of the, um, one of the papers looking at the psychological impact of facial palsy was that um, they found that it wasn't really linked to the severity of the facial palsy. So you couldn't say just because it's a milder facial palsy, it's, it's not as, I guess, impactful for the person. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I think it, it definitely, it should be something that we are talking about and I guess educating about and offering options where there are options for therapy, yeah. At least going through it as, as one of the items we check as a goal because patients mm. do have a lot of other things. They have other communication and cognitive problems and mm. but it perhaps it has been overlooked for some patients and it, it may be the thing that's most important to them that's hard to know. Um, yeah, yeah. Very personal. And I think... Yeah, and I think highlighting to patients as well um, that it is part of our role because that's one of the questions we asked in the survey was, did your patients know that they could ask you about this? And I think, I think a lot of the responses were no. So, I mean, I think it's important to, even if we raise awareness with our patients that actually this, if this is something that's a, a priority or a concern not even a priority but a concern for you it is part of my role to talk to you about this so you can you can bring those questions to me 
because otherwise they, we might not ever know that it's a concern because we're not asking and they're not telling us because they don't know it's our job. Mm, mm. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. It, it's uh, one of those things that, that does fall between different therapists mm. and, and also just who the patient has access to to talk to about it. And Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and obviously between allied health professions, um, we need to be clearer on um, how we manage this and who to refer to and the services mm. that are there and the services that are not there. Yeah. Um, I think telehealth's a big opportunity. So I, I think it's really good that that's part of your research, that you're going to, to use that as a, a method to, mm. to work with people. Um, and I think that's, that certainly um, makes it easier for people to, to perhaps access therapy at a yeah. later stage or on an yes. ongoing basis. Yeah, hopefully cost, cuts down the cost as well for the patient and for the health service because mm. you don't need you don't need quite the same resources and the patients don't need to try and you know come into a hospital and pay for parking and all of that sort of stuff. Mm. Mm. And obviously, when you have some results from your research and, and other research that is hopefully coming along in this area, that um, that can go back to the training of allied health professionals. Mm. And, definitely, because that's that's definitely an area that was also highlighted in the survey results was the I guess the lack of confidence and the lack of training mm. um, and the lack of sort of knowledge about what's out there and what people should be doing mm. Mm. yeah I think that's interesting how do people become interested in this and learn to to do this if they do if they are having a go at this type of therapy what's your knowledge of that um do they do what happened with you if someone else mentors them through you know what they've done and yeah, I think so. There, there are some, um, I, I know early on in my sort of interest, I went to a, a workshop that Dr. Susan Colson ran down in Sydney um, mm. from the facial nerve clinic. Um, and while it was sort of more oriented at peripheral nerve damage, um, it definitely sort of kickstarted my awareness of more networks and, and how to sort of start looking around for, for more people and more information that I could ask Mm. about about central facial palsy and about sort of the rehabilitation options but I think it is it is very self-directed at the moment um, in yes. terms of how people can access um, information and experts and and find out more about it yeah and I think people uh, become interested because they've got the patients who have this mm. problem and they need to find a way to help them yeah it is it is very much driven um, by need, not mm. by evidence. And uh, yeah. so I think it's terrific that you're starting to, um, to, to look at this in a, um, a more controlled and, and systematic way and uh, hopefully give us clearer guidance about what we can do. Okay. Um, I guess um, one thing about this without the evidence is, is it something that people should be a bit guarded about jumping into and treating some of these areas? Um, yeah, I think it's I think it's something that needs needs to be carefully considered. Um, but from what I've been from what I've read, um, sort of the only contraindications in in facial nerve um, rehabilitation are sort of making sure that we're avoiding any movement that could lead to synkinesis, um, mm -hmm. which is um, sort of unwanted movement of other muscles. Uh, when you get uh, inappropriate rewiring of, of nerve fibres. Um, and I think that's more of an issue in, in peripheral nerve palsy 
than in central. Um, and then I guess my other sort of thought on that point is that there's quite a lot of speech pathology practice where the evidence is low, low sort of confidence or low quality or is still very much in the in the development space. But we, you know, we we kind of we do what we make the decisions that we think are appropriate for our clients at the time. And so yes. I think it's it's probably for me, I feel like it's worth having a go if there's been if there's a little bit of evidence to suggest that it might be useful, um, obviously with careful monitoring and, mm. and measuring of impact rather than sort of shying away um, too much because I guess the, 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 other, the other points of the EBP triangle, if you will, come into play where you've got clinical experience and patient experience and, um, you know, patient motivation and um sort of expert opinion and all of that sort of stuff that you can that you can apply as well it's not just you know our, our evidence-based decision making isn't purely research-based and perhaps it's about um case looking at individual cases and trying to measure mm. and to just be aware that you're looking for improvement back to normal Mm. and not beyond normal and I guess in the central um, nerve space that's what you, you're aiming for so it is a bit different yeah. to the peripheral I think it's really yeah. great that you've separated those two as well and obviously the evidence base needs to be separate for peripheral and central nerve palsies mm. there's a difference yeah yeah and I think it's recovery. yeah it's different and it's it's a difficult area to um to try and tease apart exactly what happens with sort of brain pathways um, and it's definitely an area that I need to do more reading on in terms of sort of um, peripheral nerve regeneration versus sort of neural network um, recovery on and things like that. On top of that you'd but... have different different disorders too you'd have you know strokes obviously where the research mm. has been written up previously but mm. there are other disorders as well. Yeah, definitely. That we come across. Okay, um, look, this has been really um, fantastic introduction to you know thinking in this way about about this for for many people, I'm sure. And um, we wish you well on uh, your research and look forward to to being able to sort of learn from that in the future. And hopefully, it, oh. it guides this area um, towards you know being something we can be confident in working in. And that we can train in and have have you know some access to training so that people do feel they can um, support their patients better. So yeah. um, thank you for telling us about it. And uh, I oh, hope well, thank well you so for much you. for all your questions and thanks for letting me explain <laughs> all of the all of the different parts of it. It is a really exciting space, and I think there's there's some really great research and some really great work coming out. And so hopefully we'll we'll just see this field. Um, blossom and hopefully that will enable us to be a bit more confident as practitioners um, in what we can offer or what we can do. Thank you very much, Bill. Uh, thank you all for listening and um, we'll be back with another Speak Up conversation next week on another fabulous topic, I'm sure. So thank you very much. Bye-bye. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast where all good podcasts are found and make sure you share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for tuning in. 
and bye for now.